about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong night. We're our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up tonight on page 142. And uh, we've been talking about uh, purity of heart and chastity. And uh, we're, we're just beginning uh, with the first few paragraphs and first few sayings. Um, uh, it's challenging uh, section. I have wow written on a lot of the margins uh, just uh, because of how uh, he describes it and really what it means for us, but also the, the temptations that come to us against it, uh, how, how the evil one seeks to draw us uh, back into impurity. Uh, and uh, we'll also be looking at the very stages of of temptation uh, within this step as well. Uh, a, very, a wonderful description and in terms of our struggle in the spiritual battle to be able to see the first movements within the mind and the heart of uh, temptation as it comes upon us. So again, we're on number 19, uh, begins with certain learned men, if you have a different text. Certain learned men have well-defined renunciation by saying that it is hostility to the body and a fight against the stomach. And often the fathers will describe this spiritual life or aspects of this spiritual life as a kind of holy violence that uh, we have to, as a word, do violence to our own will and willfulness. And uh, especially in face of our particular bodily appetites, because there is a strength to them. And if we, especially if we've lived for a long portion of our life in a kind of disorder where we have not reined in or disciplined uh, these appetites or desires, the struggle with them can be great. And uh, so to uh, enter into this kind of spiritual battle and a violence against the stomach or hostility against the body, as he describes it, isn't an unusual way for them to speak of it. Uh, again, not in terms of falling into extremes and uh, in, in our disciplines of fasting or uh, vigils or uh, ordering our, any of our other appetites, uh, but nonetheless, a great discipline is needed. With beginners, fall, falls usually occur by reason of luxury with intermediates because of haughtiness, as well as from the same cause, which leads to the fall of the beginners. And with those approaching perfection, solely from judging their neighbor. So beginners uh, often will fall into a kind of impurity because of, of luxury of, of lifestyle, but also in terms of food, of giving oneself rich food or too much food, food in abundance. So humbling the body, uh, becomes uh, a very important uh, aspect of the struggle for purity of heart, as is then uh, the cons uh, consuming of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, in fact, one saint uh, says that there is no chastity outside of the Holy Eucharist. It's only strengthened by this uh, bread of life that we are uh, able then to overcome uh, the things on the natural level. So only by this supernatural virtue, supernatural love and grace, are we uh, over to, able to overcome the pull of our natural desires. So beginners typically will fall 
because of this, intermediates because of haughtiness, uh, taking kind of pride in certain gains that they might have in, in this regard. So for a period of time, they do not find themselves afflicted uh, with certain thoughts or temptations. Uh, they begin to feel that they've overcome them. And so in this kind of haughtiness or pride, uh, they uh, will lighten their disciplines and then find themselves falling into the very temptation they thought they had overcome. And then finally, those who have drawn closer to perfection, uh, pride in and of itself or judging others uh, in particular is the prelude to a fall. And uh, the book of Proverbs, if you remember, says pride rideth before the fall. So whenever a person becomes too confident uh, riding the horse, as it were, uh, and isn't attentive to uh, what they are doing, that inevitably they're going to fall off. And similarly, uh, when we take pride in ourselves, our, our, our own abilities and strengths, and we cease clinging to God, as well as being attentive to our thoughts and uh, our actions, that uh, soon a fall is to come. And especially when we look down upon others or judge them harshly. Some have extolled those who are eunuchs by nature because they are delivered from the martyrdom of the body. But I daily extol those who make themselves eunuchs by castrating their bad thoughts as with a knife. So, you know, those who've been freed because of something within nature uh, from this trial, you know, sometimes people think, oh, to be freed from this constant state of temptation would be a relief. Uh, but John is saying the, the greater virtue is the one who on a day-to-day -day -day basis takes every thought captive and certainly will cut away swiftly with prayer, uh, in particular the Jesus prayer, the thoughts that would lead one into to a fall. There's a vigilance, the uh, heroic virtue needed there uh, is such to, uh, that it should be admired. Uh, rather than wishing away the struggle, we should focus upon entering into it with as much courage as we possibly can. I've seen people who fell unwillingly, and I've seen people who would willingly fall but cannot. And I pitied the latter much more than those who fall daily, because even though impotent, they yearn for the stench. So, a person who does not actually commit the act uh, because they can't for one reason or another, or they're impotent in some way, uh, that, but yet still allow their minds to be filled with the thoughts and the fantasies that often lead to the particular sin uh, of impurity, that they are, he's saying, to be more pity than the person who might, might fall every single day and yet be struggling mightily and repent every single day. So has a, a spirit of humility within his heart and turns back to God over and over again, despite the fact that uh, he falls uh, daily. In fact, John will say uh, in this step that a person who falls daily and repents daily is looked upon uh, by their guardian angel with joy. That uh, it's the repentance, our, our willingness to humbly acknowledge the sin that uh, brings us back into that state of grace and allows us to enter into the spiritual battle again fully. And so repentance uh, is to be among the virtues valued uh, in, in a sense more than perfection because in, uh, in and through repentance, we are humbly acknowledging our need for God and his mercy. And it's only the lack of repentance that keeps us from experiencing that. And uh, so better for a person to fall every day and repent than uh, to be immersed in uh, the thoughts and the temptations and not repenting simply because an act has not been committed. And so, you know, one might think it a minor distinction, but uh, I think in reality that often happens sometimes uh, people are prevented from falling into an act of sin simply because of circumstances, not because they desire virtue and hate the sin. 
And, uh, and so this is important to keep in mind that it's really what goes on within the mind and the heart that we have to be attentive to even more so than the particular acts. He who falls is to be pitied, but still more to be pitied is the one who causes another to fall because he bears the burden of the falls of both and further the burden of pleasure tasted by the other. And so to lead another person into sin, uh, one carries the greater burden there, not only the, the sin of uh, one's own act, but leading another into sin. And uh, as he says here, the burden of the pleasure tasted by the other. So uh, he, he bears the weight of the sin committed by the other fully. And so we are, are to hold the virtue of others as precious as we would hold our own and seek to guard and protect it. Uh, love would demand such a thing, uh, but also an awareness that we uh, bear responsibility for the virtue of others, not just our, our, our own, that we don't live again in isolation in the spiritual life, that we are responsible for strengthening each other as much as we possibly can, and certainly not leading them into sin. Number 24, do not expect to overthrow the demon of fornication with refutations and pleadings. For with nature on his side, he has the best of the argument. So uh, this is why the fathers often say, you know, don't uh, think that you can engage in the spiritual battle just by uh, arguing with the temptations, wrestling with them in your own mind. Uh, in fact, it's best not to give them any attention whatsoever. And this is a hard thing for us to do because we can become filled with shame or anxiety when certain temptations begin to emerge within our minds and hearts. And uh, the temptation is to turn our attention towards them uh, even with the, the idea of struggling with them. Uh, but the fathers warn that once we've turned our attention to them, we've lost the battle, that we've taken our eyes off of God. And often that's enough for the evil one uh, to then take us along wherever he desires, because we're no longer clinging to the one alone who can give us the strength. As John says here, uh, the evil one has the best of arguments, you know, that he will convince us in one way or another, if only through the power of the desire itself uh, to seek to satisfy. But he has every other argument at hand uh, to draw us into the particular sin and certainly is going to outwit us. And so better not to engage in that struggle at all. Uh, again, remember Saint saying, uh, in this battle with the flesh, the cowards are the victors, those who flee, those who run away. So not to engage with, in particular with this uh, spiritual struggle, because it is rooted in such a powerful appetite for us and powerful desire. Okay, any comments or questions so far on what John has said? Okay. Number 25. He who has resolved to contend with his flesh and conquer it himself struggles in vain. For unless the Lord destroys the house of the flesh and builds the house of the soul, the person who wants to destroy it watches and fasts in vain. So an even stronger way of saying it, that all of our ascetical disciplines are in vain unless we are first turning to God and the grace that he alone offers, that unless God uh, builds up the soul, strengthens the soul in that struggle, that all that we do on our own is going to fall short, uh, that in one way or another, we are going to grow weary, we are going to be beaten down by the temptations or the constant affliction. And, uh, and so unless right from the beginning, we lay the foundation on prayer and on humility of acknowledging our need for the grace of God, that we are not going to make any headway. 
And, uh, and so even again, you know, if we fast, uh, our fasting has to in and, in and of itself become a kind of prayer for us, uh, a reflection of our desire, our yearning for God, not just a disconnected discipline to humble the body, but it has to be something that deepens our prayer and turns us more fully to him. Otherwise, uh, again, we are going to fall victim uh, eventually, even if, we, if these practices do strengthen us in some measure. And I think last time, maybe it was in the Evergetino's group, we talked about uh, asceticism uh, being a kind of defense mechanism in, in uh, our emotional life, that we can use certain ascetical practices to help us alter our emotional state. And so disciplining the, the body or even something like fasting uh, can alter our emotional state, uh, can perhaps bring us a kind of uh, emotional peace, uh, calm things internally, uh, but not necessarily be drawing us more deeply into that relationship with God. So we, we have to be careful that uh, the evil one can draw us into these things uh, with uh, still a lot of self-will and a lot of the self involved in it, in the, in the sense that we're trying to control something about our life or our emotional state. And uh, whereas our spiritual disciplines are really to be some things that all direct us toward God and draw us into a deeper intimacy with him, that they aren't ends in themselves. And so periodically we need to examine what it is that we're doing and why. And, uh, you know, certainly when we enter into the holy seasons, but I think even more regularly than that with our spiritual director or within the confessional itself, uh, to be able, as we prepare to look at our life of prayer, and fasting, vigils, spiritual reading, all these things. Is it simply feeding uh, something for us on our emotional level, or are we using these things to draw closer to God? One second here, one more person coming in. Number 26, offer to the Lord the weakness of your nature, fully acknowledging your own powerlessness, and imperceptibly you will receive the gift of chastity. Isn't that a, a magnificent thought that if we can humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that we have this poverty and that we are in need of his grace, if every day we are to awaken and to, to say to God, uh, that we know our poverty, we ask him to guard and protect us this day and to give us the strength to live the life that is pleasing to him, that imperceptibly, John tells us, we will come to that place of chastity. And again, it's because we, there's no self-focus there to offer God uh, our weaknesses is something that would be held as precious in the eyes of God. Uh, because we are letting go in that moment of all illusion, of, of strength, of sanctity in and of ourselves. Uh, but uh, acknowledging that these things only come to us by him. And so that simple act of humbling ourselves before him can be enough to draw us into chastity, to suddenly uh, discover ourselves not burdened as we had been in the past, because we finally abandoned ourselves to God in the fullest measure. And part of abandoning ourselves to him is this acknowledgement uh, of our, our need for him and our poverty. Humility is often uh, the, the straightest line, as it were, uh, to God, straightest path to him. And... Uh, often we'll want to take, our, again, our own way rather than simply reaching out for him or asking him to lift us up and give us the strength that we need. Anthony writes, I think, I kind of think, or we try too hard to be Christians 
and that is uh, self-centered and very difficult focus. It's not the way of easy relief of Christ's cross. It's my cross. Right, so that in the spiritual life, we can lose sight of Christ. And even uh, as you mentioned here in the bearing of our cross, we see our own crosses as disconnected from his own. And uh, in this, even in this, we are, can still be turned inward. And suffering and trial often will do that to us. Uh, we, because we uh, know kind of weakness and we pull in again to protect ourselves. We pull inward. Uh, and it's not a critique. I think that's part of, you know, if we struggle with illness or a great cross comes to us, uh, the experience of it will often draw us inward. And uh, the pain is, can be a frightening thing in that way. And to be able, whether it's spiritual pain, the struggle with constant temptation or physical pain through illness, to reach out to God in those moments uh, when the, the pain seeks to draw, come to the center of attention and to such an extent that we lose sight of God. And in, in the spiritual life, it can be that way. You know, there are experience at times of the shame of sins past and present can draw us in on ourselves and make it very difficult for us to look upon God. And uh, you remember the story again from the Old Testament where the people are stung by the serpents and Moses has, is told, you know, to pin a serpent to a pole and have the people gaze at it and through they'll be healed. In a sense of looking upon the consequence of their sin and uh, gazing upon it. And in a similar way, we are to gaze upon Christ crucified uh, in order that we might keep our focus upon uh, but both the consequence of our sin, but also the depth of God's love and mercy for us. And, uh, and in that struggle, if we, again, lose sight of the cross, and we can do this. I mean, we see it happening very often, even within our churches and, and how people write about the spiritual life uh, to uh, push the cross out to the margins rather than to have ourselves, as we see the saints doing, being so deeply immersed in the Paschal mystery and uh, allowing our, ourselves to see our own struggles and crosses to be uh, intimately tied to Christ's own. And when we do this, we become weak and vulnerable in the spiritual life. And uh, you follow up with, my pastor once mentioned how we make our own uh, heavy, two heavy crosses. Right. And Philip Neary said, we are often the carpenter of our own crosses. Uh, similarly, that we often construct our own, uh, even. And uh, I think by keeping ourselves focused upon the Lord, uh, and I think Eric picks up on this here, I try to project this seraph serpent mounted on the pole to the Eucharist, lifted up during the liturgy, Right, to, to gaze upon the fruit of the Paschal mystery, uh, that we, we gaze upon it in such a way that it, it brings healing upon us. And I think this is why people find something like Eucharistic adoration as well to be something that is so deeply healing, uh, to come into uh, the presence of the Lord in such a way and to gaze upon him uh, allows us to be drawn into to, uh, this divine reality. And, uh, and there's something about that, that uh, we, the more that we internalize that, the more that we carry it through our day, it becomes the lens through which we view everything in our life, others, our own sin, our own particular struggles. And I think in essence, this is what John is trying to tell us here, you know, to keep our, our focus again, where it needs to be, uh, rather than turning in upon ourselves for whatever reason, uh, whatever reason it might be. Okay, number 27. In sensual people, as one who had experienced this passion personally told me after he had overcome it, there is a feeling of a sort of love 
for bodies and a shameless and inhuman spirit, which openly asserts itself in the very feeling of the heart. This spirit produces a feeling of physical pain in the heart, fierce as from a blazing furnace. As a result of this, the sufferer does not fear God, despises the remembrance of hell as of no consequence, disdains prayer, and it is nearly as though he accomplishes the very act itself and he regards the sight of the remains of the dead as though they were nothing but lifeless stones. He's like someone out of his mind and in a trance, perpetually drunk with the desire for creatures, rational and irrational. And if the days of this spirit were not cut short, not a soul would be saved, clothed as it is in this clay, mingled with blood and foul moisture. How could they be? For everything created longs insatiably for what is akin to it. Blood desires blood, the worm desires a worm, clay desires clay. So like is attracted to like. And this is one of the paragraphs that I wrote while next to because of uh, there's something kind of frightening about it, that the, uh, the strength of that pull that we experience. And as he describes it here, it becomes like a burning uh, and blazing furnace and can so overtake the soul, so consume it, that its only thought is to possess what will satisfy it. And so the more that we lose sight of God, then the, the things that have the strongest pull upon us as human beings, uh, we are going to turn to in order to seek fullness, to, to fill that void within us. And it reach, can reach a point, John is telling us here, where it is insatiable and will consume the person completely to the point that they're almost in a trance and become irrational beings. How, and let's see where I leave off here. And does not flesh desire flesh too? Yet we who constrain nature and desire and take the kingdom by force, try various tricks to deceive this deceiver. Blessed are they who have not experienced the conflict described above. Let us pray that we may always be delivered from such a trial, because those who slip into the pit we have mentioned fall far below those ascending and descending by the ladder. And to get out of that pit to the point of the beginning of the ascent, they need much sweat and extreme abstinence. So it's easy for us, as it were, to fall into the pit that like uh, is attracted to like flesh to the flesh and so if god is not the focus of our life or and if we lose sight of and even find abhorrent all the things that are described in the beginning of this paragraph all the things that help us spiritually that if we fall lower than those who are on that first rung of the ladder john tells us and if we've gone down that far, he says, the, the amount of sweat and extreme abstinence to arise out of it is, is going to be great. Uh, and I don't think he's exaggerating here. I think uh, it's almost frightening in the sense of, I, I know I keep using that word frightening, but I, I think we, because we see it so clearly in our culture, in a hyper-centralized uh, environment, that if this becomes the sole focus and also the pursuit of everything that brings us to it, uh, then uh, the image of the human person very quickly becomes distorted. And it's not as though we are simply overcome by one passion. We find ourselves in the grip of all the others as well. And so if a person sinks to a level lower than that first rung, it, it truly means that they are in the grip of all the passions. And so it takes something extreme to raise them out of it. And we've mentioned this before, that sometimes in the lives of the saints, we see them undergo a great trial that awakens them even to this reality that, uh, Ignatius, we've mentioned before, of Loyola, you know, the wound from the war and his recovery. Uh, Francis of Sisi uh, struggled with great illness, too. And so many saints 
like this, having near-death experiences that awaken them to their own mortality, but also to um, the spiritual reality of their life. Uh, and uh, so not only the brevity of their life, but awakens them uh, to the greater truth of uh, the reality of God, but also judgment. And uh, so they begin to, to see with a greater clarity uh, their own poverty. But unless something like this happens, John tells us, it's very difficult to arise from it. Because how does repentance emerge when one has become so consumed by the passion that it is the sole desire? So if any desire for God or virtue uh, has been snuffed out, then what is it that draws us back to him? What is it that can awaken us? And sometimes God will allow us to experience the consequence of our sin and, and its poverty in great measure, uh, not to punish us, but so much as, so much as to wake us, wake us up to reality itself. And... Uh, St. Paul is a good image of this too, you know, experiencing an affliction that awakes him to uh, what he had been doing, even in the, in the, for the sake of righteousness. So this would be a good paragraph to mark off, not because it's an easy thing or pleasant thing to read, uh, but I think it illuminates so much of the importance of the ascetic life in the life of prayer. And of drawing close, you know, not giving ourselves over to lukewarmness or spirit of mediocrity, because it, we can eventually be drawn into this state where our conscience has become so desensitized that we're no longer aware of the, the moral significance of our own actions, the moral weight of them. He continues, we ought to consider whether our spiritual enemies have not each their own proper task to fulfill when drawn up in battle array against us, just as in a visible war. Surprising to say, they certainly have. When I thought about those who were tempted, I observed that falls were of varying seriousness. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So there is a kind of logic, as it were, to how the evil one enters into the battle against us. We'll look for uh, weak places, uh, the, the weakest point uh, where he can afflict us uh, in order to break the line, as it were. And uh, so he'll choose those passions that we find ourselves struggling with the most and hit us there, knowing that if we give ourselves over to this, he'll be able to draw us into so many others. And so when we enter into the spiritual life, identifying what our primary passions are and beginning to seek healing uh, for them is the wise course of action for us. And again, this is why it's so valuable to read something like Cassian's description of the eight vices or to read the Ladder of Divine Ascent and to have the passions so clearly described how they manifest themselves as well as what is the curative remedy for them, uh, so that we aren't, as it were, wandering in the dark. The devil often has the habit, especially in warring against ascetics and those leading the solitary life, of using all his force, all his zeal, all his cunning, all his intrigue, all his ingenuity and purpose to assail them by means of what is unnatural and not by what is natural. Therefore, ascetics coming into contact with women and not in any way tempted either by desire or thought have sometimes regarded themselves as already blessed, not knowing, poor things, that where a worse downfall had been prepared for them, there was no need of the lesser. So, You know, the evil one will often uh, have no, desire, no need to attack directly. So if he sees that he can arouse 
or bring about a fall by circling around to a place where we are inattentive uh, to, to weaken us. So not directly hitting us with temptations either by thought or by desire, but rather making us think that uh, we are blessed, that we are somehow above these particular temptations. Uh, and in this, he'll draw us down. So both on a more spiritual level, as well as on the level of uh, those things rooted to bodily appetites, we have to be equally vigilant. Because again, the evil one will use every means. And it's interesting how John describes it too. I mean, the, the repetitiveness of this, uh, using all his force, all his zeal, all his cunning intrigue, ingenuity, and purpose. So everything at his disposal, he will use against us. And uh, so again, it's another reason why we should not trust, I think, in our own judgment. Number 30, I think that our wretched murderers have the habit of besetting and seducing us poor creatures with sins contrary to nature for the following two reasons, that we may have everywhere plenty of opportunity to fall and that we may receive greater punishment. What we have just said was learned by personal experience by him who had previously commanded asses and had afterwards been given over to wild asses and pitifully disgraced. And though he had previously been nourished with heavenly bread, he was afterwards deprived of this blessing. And what is most astonishing is that even after his repentance, our founder Anthony, grieving bitterly, said of him, a great pillar has fallen. But that wise man hid the manner of the fall for he knew that bodily fornication is possible without intercourse with another body. There is in us a kind of death. There is in us a devastating sin, which is ever born about with us, but especially in youth. But I have not dared to write about it because my hand is restrained by him who said the things which are done by them in secret, it is a shame even to speak of or to write or to hear. So, uh, we can act, uh, we don't need another to draw us into impurity, that we can be in and of ourselves the source of that impurity and the source of those impure desires. And, uh, you know, with the shame that is sometimes tied to this, John says that it'll, it can even lead someone like here who is a pillar uh, uh, to hide the, the nature of it rather than bringing it forth into the light in order that he might be, he might be healed. And, uh, and, you know, especially says those in their youth uh, will, you know, they might not have that opportunity uh, to engage in the sins of the flesh with others, but with themselves do so. Any thoughts or comments? Okay. This, yes, okay, Eric. The part about the asses confused me. What, did, uh -huh. what does he mean by that? Well, I think, uh, you know, there can be a kind of impure desire that is directed towards uh, animals as well. And, uh, that you know, a kind of bestiality uh, can develop within a heart as well, and so even though another human is not around, that uh, sort of this sexual appetite can, as we read in the previous paragraphs, so consume an individual that the need to satisfy it can draw a person beyond reason, from the rational to the irrational. And even into something that is, uh, again, not simply satisfaction with oneself, but with beast. And, you know, it's, and I think that's why he doesn't want to write, write about it. I mean, that, that there's the very nature of it is uh, kind of abhorrent and, uh, and 
I think the fact that one who was a pillar had fallen was even jarring to St. Anthony, that here, you know, one had who was holy had hidden the temptation and in the hiding of it uh, becomes overcome by it even more. And uh, so, you know, I, I think it's important that this is brought up because I think there are some sins, you know, as a priest over the course of time, and then certainly even looking at my own spiritual struggle, there can be uh, this sense that we have of things that I, I would never do that. Like I've heard, I've heard people say, say this, that even as they draw close to certain sins, that they have it in their mind, that they would never let it progress into something that they see as being far more grave. And so if, you know, they're struggling with temptation uh, with themselves or with others, with their own thoughts, uh, they, you know, can have this moral sense that, no, I don't want to do that. Or no, I understand the gravity of that. I would never do that. But the, the issue is, and I think this is what John is telling us, is that the more that one lets themselves be overcome by this and so wholly consumed that a person can be drawn into the unthinkable, the unimaginable. And it's not that far really for a person to go uh, that, uh, you know, I, I think certainly with this, it might be harder for us to imagine that. But, you know, people are drawn into committing acts of murder, you know, where it would never have entered into their mind that they had the capacity to do that. And yet, similarly, you know, by the, the passion of anger unchecked over the course of time and the heat of the moment and the heat of that passion. Uh, especially when certain circumstances are present, they can do what is unthinkable. David. I just had a quick question in general on this particular topic. I uh, was doing catechesis and then I have two adult sons. And with both groups, this is especially, um, you know, like impure thoughts and, um, uh, people uh, basically masturbation in general it becomes very difficult it pushes it creates a wedge because when they go out to the culture they're being told that this is normal especially with counselors and psychologists and, and we're the fanatics and this is not natural and um, with my two adult sons they have girlfriends and I keep saying I do not agree with you know them having intimate relationships with their girlfriends and they feel that that's necessary today and I don't know anything of course but I'm just wondering you know since this particular um, virtue seems to be take it takes time and I think it's very difficult for younger people how how can we overcome this or I, I, I ran out of arguments. I have no idea how to, <laughs> well, to, uh, to try I, to do better. And I'm looking for anything that I can do to have people reconsider it before they get to be 40 or 50. Right. That's right. Because often there is a kind of shame that's tied to it as well. And um you know, and it's interesting, too, when a person enters into the spiritual battle, they're even more greatly afflicted. So, you know, in their life before entering into the spiritual life, uh, you remember, I think it was in the Evercatinas where it said, you know, uh, we're only warred against if we're warring ourselves. And, uh, and so sometimes people say, you know, since I've begun to live the spiritual life, I've actually gotten worse you know, maybe I should just quit and, and give up. But you're right. You know, I think when I've had multiple people tell me exactly what you said, that the, well, whole, if, the whole culture is saying. If I could just add. Sure. So my children grew up in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, from when Sebastian was 11 months old, he came at 10. And then my youngest one, I was able to get custody of him at 14. 
So until they were 21, mm -hmm. they were going to confession very frequently, bad and believers. And now they've kind of drifted away now that they're 25 and 26. Right. And I, uh, it pains me because I felt like I didn't, I haven't done enough. I haven't found a way to explain it well. Well, you know, it's a good point because I, I think my first thought in uh, listening to you is that absolutely I've heard the same thing described that we live in this culture, as we said, that is hypersensualized, but we also live in a culture that normalizes it, actually tells people it's healthy, and uh, but also then presents uh, sort of this Christian anthropology as being uh, repressive. And, uh, and so essentially unhealthy, that you're doing emotional damage to yourself if you uh, if you suppress certain urges, which is different than repression. Repression is an, is an unconscious kind of thing and uh, can be driven by this kind of deep guilt and shame. Whereas to suppress certain thoughts tied to it is much different. We're very conscious of what we're dealing with and why we are suppressing the thoughts because we know where they lead to or the desires. But I, I think what we don't do a very good job of, I think is what sitting with the fathers does over the course of the years does for us. We develop this more complete anthropology and psychology of what it is to be a human being, but also a human being made in the image and likeness of God. And that presents to us our full dignity and identity as men and women of faith and the joy and the freedom that that, that brings to us. And so when we approach the spiritual life simply in a moralistic or uh, legalistic fashion, I think ine inevitably people are, are going to fail. They're, they're not going to be able to persevere in that simply because of the onslaught of everything from the culture. And then uh, if, uh, if it's only being presented to them as something that is morally wrong, then uh, they're not going to have anything else that is drawing them forward. No, nothing that gives hope, nothing that gives real strength to them. And so it has to be a, a culture, a life as a whole that one enters into that shapes that identity and gives shape to it over the course of time and deepens it and allows it to become internalized. So it becomes the natural reality. It becomes the lens through which we view our life and we're, the way that we look at the culture and everything that's going on in the culture. The problem is, is that we are so often subjected from our earliest years uh, to a culture and so many that are telling us just the opposite. And, uh, and when the church becomes disconnected from the spiritual tradition, from the uh, ascetical and mystical tradition, the lived faith throughout the centuries. And uh, then it becomes very difficult for us to articulate it more than in the moralistic and legalistic terms. And that's never going to speak to the depth of another person's religiosity. Right. And, and I tried to take the freedom that whatever you, uh, it becomes, uh, you became enslaved to anything you can't control. Right. And it just, it worked for a while. It just didn't, uh, with the culture and especially the cult of science where you go to a counselor or a psychologist or, right. um, and they tell you, you know, no, that's perfectly normal. And, Right. These other people are fanatics. It just disheartening because when we were in Mexico, it wasn't the same. I mean, people are very divided. There are definitely people that don't agree, but there's a huge core of people. That, Say that um, again, that last part. The, the culture is very divided there as well, but there is a huge group of the culture um, uh, enough to have their own political party. So. Mm -hmm. 
um, if not quite as outlier as maybe our culture right now. I don't know. It right. seemed yeah. easier there. I don't yeah, know. Sorry, well, because there can be cultures that, you know, still are shaped by their religious heritage, uh, even if it's already begun to break down. I think what we find in the West that it's almost completely broken down and that uh, that people hold on to their Christian faith more out of uh, the fact that they are born into it. And like the cultural. That, that's right. It becomes purely cultural without any kind of depth to it. And so our task at hand, I think, is very challenging. And uh, to be honest with you, I think it's not going to come through catechesis and it's not going to come only through immersing ourselves in this anthropology, spirituality, psychology of the fathers. It's going to come through living it and embodying it. I think that's the most compelling thing that the, the one who is pure of heart becomes the living icon of the truth of that of this reality and are going to manifest it in such a way to the world that it's going to be true, truly compelling. That uh, I often bring up St. Philip Neri here and, uh, and he was known for having this deep purity of heart and love of purity from the earliest, earliest years of his life. And that continued throughout the course of his life as well. And so often we hear in the stories of the life of the saints that even their countenance changes, that people see in their very bearing the, the fruit of that purity of heart manifests itself in these concrete and tangible ways. So they become, uh, again, these, these living icons, if you will. Uh, and this is what we, we need within the world, those who are saints. And uh, often I've said here before, you know, one prayer within a family can elevate the whole family. And certainly one who's embraced the faith on more than a superficial level or intellectual level, notional level, but has internalized it, is going to be able to uh, affect uh, the, all the people around him. You know, St. Seraphim of Seraph is often quoted as saying, you know, the, the one who has obtained the peace of the kingdom within will save thousands. And which is striking, you know, it's saying that one who bears within himself the peace of Christ, the peace of the kingdom, simply by his very being is going to draw others toward Christ and be the, the cause of then the salvation of, of thousands. And I think it's hard for us, to, excuse me, to have faith in that, to hope in the promise of that. And so we will project the problem as being out there, which it is. And so it's easy for us to do that rather than to look at the, the struggle within the world as something that's radically tied to us. There is a radical solidarity that exists between ourselves and others. And so the spiritual healing of the world has to go through our heart first. This is where we have to focus. It's, it's, excuse me, it's our own conversion, our own deep repentance and transformation by the grace of God that has to be the focus of our attention. And that's a hard thing to do. I think when we look at the world around us, we think, oh, my goodness, we need the Pope needs to say something or write another encyclical or somebody needs to write a book about this. And we don't need another book and we don't need, uh, 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 you know, another encyclical or something along those lines. We need saints, you know, those who embody the gospel. And uh, that, that's the thing that's going to be truly transformative. Uh, to come into contact with Christ himself in and through those who have been truly transformed in mind and in, uh, and in every way into him, becoming Christ for, for others. That, that's the thing that's going to have the most impact. And so I think, you know, even when I would counsel people, you know, what, what am I going to say to someone when they tell me, you know, their kids are being affected by the culture around them? Uh, because it's inevitable. 
And it's also inevitable that we're going to think that that's more powerful than the grace of God, because it's so far sweeping. And it seems to have such a grip on our world, you know, to watch the news, and we've talked about this before, throws people into depression, it throws them into agitation, because we see people beating up on people, murdering people over, you know, for no reason, good reason whatsoever. And, uh, and so our thought is that that's, that is what has control of us in the world around us. It's hard for us to hold on to what Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so instead of focusing on this reality as if it is what defines us, uh, what should really define and shape our heart and our response to this is greater and greater conversion. That as we see evil within the world, sin in the world, we it, what it should move us to do is not focus upon it, but on our hearts and that call to greater and greater conversion. And so we have to experience that in the most personal way, but not in the sense of allowing it to drive us to this terrible anxiety and hopelessness, but to draw us into the arms of Christ. And, you know, if Christ tells us, you know, the faith the size of a mustard seed, you know, could move mountains, then, you know, what does one person who's given themselves over completely to Christ, what is that going to accomplish in the world around them? Or St. Philip Neri again saying, if I had 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. 10 men. So if 10 men who are fully given over, who uh, have abandoned their will completely to Christ, they, we could convert the world. And I, I think part of the, the demon's uh, temptation for us is a temptation against hope and trust in the power of, uh, of the grace of God and trust in the, the, the love and the mercy that flows to us from the cross. We lose hope in the promises of Christ. And so, again, you know, for your, your, your own sake, and I think as you communicate to others, it is, you know, speaking about the, the, our hope in what Christ has promised, the life, the love that is held out to us. Uh, and, but it can't be mere words. And I think that's the, the crux of the, the matter here. It has to be something that really is going to speak to the depths of others' hearts. People are intuitive. They know when it's just words. And so if somebody's up in the pulpit and they're preaching, again, you know, it might be eloquent. And we might say all the right things. We might know the church teachings inside and out, but it's going to fall on deaf ears because it's not going to ring true. It's always going to sound hollow. Daniel, did you want to follow up with this? And then Louise, I see your comment here too. I was just going to say that listening to what you what you said there um, made me really think um, in a different way of like this. This is talk about the way of beauty, and and I I really like it. I guess. Um, and I think all the things, you know, like, like the icons, right? Like things like that, very visible, physical things is what I normally think of. And I think all that's very important. However, listening to that made me think like, like people are going to gravitate towards what they perceive right or wrong as beautiful, right? Like people are gravitating towards things, not because they're masochistic, because it seems like it's a good. And, you know, showing the world you know, I guess in this conversation of purity and chastity, but like maybe focusing a little more on purity too, is showing the world Christ is is showing the world a truly the truly beautiful person, and so becoming more Christ-like is show is is all is is the ultimate fruit, I guess, of that that way of beauty, and it kind of makes sense with that saying the Saint Seraphim of Seraph said, like if you what was it if you attain the the, uh, the peace of the Holy spirit um, then thousands around you will be converted not because you did anything special or that you'd even notice it but because you because by that grace of the holy spirit you were able to show to the world the thing it's it kind of longs for every day anyways 
Right. You show them Christ. Again, yeah. The if we're created in the image and likeness of God and we've been made for him, we only find our fullness within him, our completeness. And so anyone who embodies Christ is, is going to be a light, illuminate that path for people towards, towards him. And, uh, and so in some ways, it's easy for us even to say that Christ is the most beautiful of all people. And, you know, we, we've read it, we've heard, uh, you know, it quoted, but the idea that we are to become that, that we are to be transformed into that by grace, and that this is essentially what the end of our spiritual life is, deification, and not something in a, in a distant future, but now, you know, by the grace of God, we participate in the divine life, and are, are transformed by it. And, uh, and again, it's because, you know, we turn it into an abstraction. Uh, it becomes this psychological construct for us, but something that really has no bearing upon our life or effect upon our life or those around us. Louise comments here, at an older age, there is an appeasement of the bodily pulsions. Therefore, there is a lot of good to say about older age, amen. I am thankful. Maybe it's uh, partly due to my turning to the beloved many years ago, repeating again and again in my heart, there is no God but God. Right. I think on a natural level that, uh, and this is where we have to be careful, you know, on a natural level, sometimes the strength of those natural desires can diminish for us on, on some level, that we can feel that they're not as strong as when we were in our youth and the hormones are, you know, flying. Uh, but, you know, still uh, what goes on within the mind and the heart uh, can take over. And still for a person who's in their 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, to the moment they're in, in the grave uh, can experience you know, that, that's, that same pull. And, uh, and so you're right, you know, I think, uh, and oftentimes we have find other things in our life, that give meaning, you know, we, uh, you know, have pursued and built an identity on all these different levels, marriage, family, children, career, and even in our faith life as well, that, and a certain level of commitment to, uh, Christ as well, being able to say here, there is no God, but God, you know, where the, the, the ego is, uh, becomes less and less prominent. And it is no longer I, remember Paul says, no longer I who live I. It's, it, it, the word is ego that he uses there. No longer I who live I, but Christ who lives within me. That, you know, there's no God, but God. So he reaches this point where the self, is out of the picture, it's only Christ. And the more we move there, I think the, the less it has a pull on us. And in the unnatural way, or in a way that would be not pleasing to God. So a lot, lot of wonderful thoughts here, and a lot, a lot certainly to, to meditate upon. And you know, David, thank you for your question, because I think part of what we want to do in our reading of this is again to ask ourselves well, what does this mean for us and how do we internalize it and what does this mean in terms of our life in this world especially when we see sort of the sweeping <clears throat> changes i mean the the sexual revolution is nothing in comparison to i think what we see going on in our day like reality as a whole uh, is, you know, people are defining it for them themselves in ways that were, would have been unimaginable for those a couple of generations ago. And so one can reach a point of hopelessness to say, you know, not even how can I live this, but how could I live this within the world as it is? What's that going to mean for me? And, you know, I've often mentioned that, that modern elders saying, you know, that those who maintain purity of heart in our day are, are going to be like the martyrs of the old, old days. That to live this now is going to require a kind of uh, courage and heroism in the faith 
that is was akin to the those who are going to death, you know, because of their proclamation of their faith in Christ, because we're doing the same thing. If we're saying purity of heart speaks to us of God himself and the love with which we've been created and of our, that is fundamental to our identity and freedom, the moment that you say that, you're going to be jumped on by people with both feet. And it's, and we're heading in that direction, you know, where it becomes something like hate speech, even to say something along those lines. And if you're in the behavioral, you know, if, if you're in the uh, field of psychology, you know, it's going to be rough waters, as you were saying, when most people, perhaps in, in your field, uh, don't, don't hold that. And, you know, studying psychoanalysis was sort of an interesting experience uh, in that regard. Uh, because I think now, because things have become so acceptable, in our culture, whenever something comes up, even if it's been so deeply wounding to an individual and where say they, they have this kind of gender dysmorphia and, or they just hate gender altogether, the, the counsel that would be given, you know, from one counselor to another or one therapist to another would be to send them to a group that would solidify that for them, that that's where they're going to find peace and healing by thrusting them into an, an environment that's going to solidify that view of reality. Uh, whereas past generations of psychology wouldn't have done that, you know, in sort of, even in sort of like the, the, the British psychoanalytic field, the, the, the word perversion is still used clinically and in a clinical fashion. But if you use that in, in the United States, again, people would jump all over you. What do you mean perversion? You know, you, you couldn't even speak of it in, term, in those terms anymore uh, of being a, a distortion of the person's perception of reality and, and self. And so, you know, there, we're going to be living in sort of like a, a culture of schizophrenia schizophrenia or psychosis and living in that is going to be pretty challenging not to be be the bringer of bad news but <laughs> prepare yourselves as much as you can okay thank you all and uh let's pray for each other and why don't we close as always with the our father in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.